Thanks to Grammarly for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps you improve your writing so you can be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Go to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, December 3rd. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on today's show, we're going to talk the downside of the crypto hype. We'll talk about why young workers are dipping into their retirement accounts, and it doesn't seem like they're doing it for all the right reasons. We'll tap into Twitter, of course. We'll give you one to watch for the week. But we're going to begin today's episode talking about this massive data breach here for Marriott that was just announced uh, late last week. Joining me in the studio via Skype this week, as always, is certified financial planner Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going? Pretty good. It's nice weather here. I can't complain. Good weekend. Yeah, you know my philosophy, man. You could complain. Nobody wants to listen anyway, right? So why? Yeah, especially not. Especially not you, right? (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna be. We're gonna try to make this show uplifting, right? Give people something to look forward to. Um, And I tell you, probably not picking the right (laughs) the right topic to start with this week. Maybe Uh, this was a massive, massive data breach on Marriott's part. And it seems like it goes all the way back to 2014, which predates, of course, Marriott's uh, mega deal with Starwood. Um, and it also sounded like the breach perhaps started on the Starwood side of the business anyway. But let's dig into this a little bit, because while Marriott isn't necessarily a company that we're going to cover here in the financials universe, I mean, this is one of those things that happens. And I think that as investors, as consumers, we have to just be used to this fact now that data breaches are a matter of if not when. And the more people that use technology, uh, the more the you know the bigger these data breaches are gonna be. Um so I, I always approach these data breaches as as a matter of if uh I mean when not if and um and I think that uh there are things we can do as consumers obviously to help out um our, our cause here. But uh, you you used to work uh, for Starwood for a time, didn't you, Matt? Yes, not in any department that would be related to this incident. Oh, uh, okay, so we you're not pointing any fingers then. <laughs> no, but um, no, I definitely I used to work for Starwood, um, not in any capacity related to this. But um, there are some kind of key takeaways from this, just like there was about the Equifax breach last year that we, that I think we did a whole episode on on this right. show. Um, so just the kind of key things to know what, first of all, what was taken, um, they said their whole database was breached and I don't know about you, but I really don't care if anybody sees my, (laughs) my historical hotel reservations. Nope. Um, I don't either. I'm I'm happy to, I'm happy to share with anyone where I've stayed on Starwood properties. When I go to HQ, I stay at a Starwood hotel. (laughs) Um, so the real issue is credit card numbers and, other identifying information like that. So the thing to know is just kind of what to do. One, kind of take a step back because you're not we're not sure exactly what anybody got or who got it or whether it's even going to become an issue. But the important thing to do as a consumer is to just be sure you're monitoring your credit regularly. You should be able, you should be doing this anyway. Um, there are a lot of services out there that'll let you monitor your credit report for free. You're actually entitled to a free copy of each of your three major credit reports once a year. Uh, annualcreditreport.com is where you get the official one. Um, 
And it's just a really good practice to get into, and um, especially like a credit alert service that'll send you an alert, like if a new account is opened up or a new inquiry happens. So you can, you know, nip these problems in the bud before they start. Going beyond that, what you could do is create what's called an, a fraud alert on your credit. And to do this, you really only have to let one of the three credit bureaus know. They're required to notify the other two. And this just kind of sets an alert when you when credit is applied for in your name. That lender will see a fraud alert, meaning that they should take additional steps to verify that you are who you say you are. Like um, if you're applying for a credit card and they see a fraud alert, they might ask you to send them a copy of your driver's license or something like that. Um, and if you're really worried about your identity being stolen you can, and you don't need to use your credit anytime soon, you can put what's called a credit freeze on there, which thanks to the recent bank reform bill is now free. So you can create a credit freeze. You have to do that with each individual credit bureau, and that will effectively prevent anybody from opening new credit in your name. Um, what it does is it kind of locks your credit report. So when someone applies for credit in your name, that lender is physically unable to pull your credit and therefore has no way to make a lending decision. So there's kind of three things you should be doing, or you could do, just to kind of recap. One, keep monitoring your, monitoring your credit, set alerts so you know exactly what's happening at all times. Two, put a fraud alert on if you're worried, if you're a regular Starwood customer like I am, and you're worried that this might have affected you, a fraud alert's a great way to go. And a credit freeze, if you notice anything suspicious, especially a credit freeze, is kind of the more drastic step you can take. Yeah, I like your point there about consistently and regularly monitoring your credit report. I think that is something that perhaps a time ago may have been a little bit more difficult to do, a little bit more costly. But but as you noted, there, there are so many different ways to go about that now, and it, it really can be so easy. Not Just an example, I have a, an American Express card, and, and they give me a little service I can subscribe to there, where every quarter, they, you know, they give me a copy of, of my my credit report, and I mean, it, it costs really nothing over the course of a year. But it's something that I never have to worry about. I know just every quarter I'm going to get a copy of my credit report so I can see it, make sure everything is in line. Uh, you know, if there are any discrepancies, then then there's a you know an easy way to go about trying to address it and settle it. Um, and I, you know, I don't know that people. I don't know that people recognize, maybe at a younger age at least, how important, how valuable an asset that credit score really is. I mean, that is something that can open up a lot of doors for you. And and if you don't maintain, if you don't protect it and build it and grow it, uh, you really you kind of selling yourself short there. That's true. A lot of younger people also kind of underestimate what a pain it is to fix it once your identity is actually stolen. Yeah, yeah, that's um, a good point. It could be a, a – I mean, ultimately, it, you should be able to get everything removed from your credit report, but it can take some time and a lot of headaches, a lot of paperwork you have to fill out, police reports and things like that. Then you have to convince each creditor that the account wasn't actually yours. Mm. So it could be a big uphill battle. I know friends who have taken you know a year or more to like completely clear their credit after a serious breach. Yeah, that sounds like a massive hassle. Another thing I, I've done before, I I don't do this uh, religiously, but but I do tend to um, I, I like when I do hotels or or bigger purchases like that. I tend to use a credit card as opposed to a debit card, and the reason why is 
you know, if someone's going to steal my identity, and I mean, let's face it, I mean, we live in we live in an age where I mean, oversharing is rampant. I mean, people are posting what they're having for breakfast on Facebook every day and, and telling you what they're doing right after. I mean, it, just, it, it seems like stealing someone's identity would be pretty easy, uh, given given the state of, of social networking today. But but I, for me. Um, I'll use a credit card oftentimes as opposed to a debit card because at least if someone gets my credit card number, that's fine. I mean, I'm not that's not good, but at least it's not something linked to my checking account where they can just drain the cash out of my bank account. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, your bank is going to take care of you, your credit card company is going to take care of you. But I've always had this little phobia about linking too many things to our checking account or a debit card. Thinking that if you know something was hacked or stolen, man, I mean, if you you get that cash siphoned right out of your account, I mean, that's a more pressing issue than dealing with credit card fraud. You're not you're not in a time crunch really as much with credit card fraud, and you're not put in a cash crunch uh, with a credit card like you might be with a debit card or linking something to your checking account. Yeah, definitely. Um, I and credit cards generally have you know zero fraud liability, where I think debit cards it's um, you have some liability. I think it's like fifty dollars or so now, but credit cards generally have universal zero fraud liability these days. So that's definitely a good point. Yep. Well, bottom line, these these data breaches are gonna they're gonna happen. There's nothing you can really do to control that. So always keep this kind of stuff top of your mind. Protect your identity. Protect your credit report. Your credit score. You have ways to do that, um, and we encourage you to. to to always, uh, always keep that in mind. All right, let's talk about something a little bit. Uh, I don't want to say the lighter side of news because I'm sure there's some people that probably ended up losing a little bit from something uh, that these guys were pushing. But you know, we were reading an article over the weekend in regard to this massive gold rush, so to speak, of cryptocurrency and these ICOs or these initial coin offerings that seem to be popping up left and right. And I mean, it's it's difficult enough. For someone to explain Bitcoin and how it works and why it matters, you know, I mean, now we're, we've got all of these other coins that are coming from these ICOs, and, and apparently uh, there are some celebrities that felt like they would get in there and, and get a little little piece of the action. Uh, DJ <laughs> DJ Khaled and Floyd Mayweather uh, are in a little bit of trouble with the SEC. It sounds like they may have been able to. To come to a resolution there, but but these two guys were, they were backing uh, these ICOs. They were pushing these ICOs, uh, telling telling consumers, telling people that man, you got to get in while the getting's good, and you you, you got to get in on this game changer. Um, and and the bottom line was they never disclosed the fact that they were actually being paid to tell people that. So it wasn't like they were doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And well, lo and behold, the SEC finds out, and now they uh, they they found themselves in a little bit of hot water. And it sounds like the SEC is settling. Uh, the two individuals will pay uh, fairly heavy fines, and I think give back all the money that they were paid uh, in in doing the promotions there. But but I, it goes back a little bit to this this crypto craze, Matt, and I'm, I'm I understand why it exists. I understand that there's potentially a future there, and we had Aaron Bush on here a few weeks back to talk a little bit more about it. But when I see stuff like this, I just become so disenchanted. Yeah, it's completely understandable. I mean, people people have lost enough money in legitimate cryptocurrencies lately, um, just not in, not even counting the ICOs. Um, 
the total cryptocurrency market cap has gone down by about $700 billion since the peak. That's phenomenal. So there's been some, some money lost here. Um, with these ICOs, personally, I hope that you know, uh, DJ Khaled and Floyd Mayweather aren't the only two who get in some kind of trouble for pumping these ICOs over the past few years. Um, just to kind of give you a little bit of context, in 2018, so far, there have been about $12 billion raised with these ICOs. And a study found that only 8% of them ever even make it to a cryptocurrency exchange. The rest either fizzle out, kind of just get stuck um, in the fundraising stages, or just disappear and fail entirely. So only 8% make it to an exchange at all. The rest are complete money losers. Uh, The study found that 81% are flat-out scams, or were flat-out scams. I even heard a, a Bitcoin expert on CNBC recently talking about how the ICO market is dead now. Wow. That it's just been so bad that it's turned off so many investors that that's just not a way that companies are going to be able to raise capital anymore. It's just been ruined. So it's yeah. it's, it's kind of crazy what's happened there. It really is. I mean, it's 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 been a mania and it, it I was thinking about this and, and it strikes me that one of the one of the investing lessons I take away from something like this, it's a good reminder that it's okay to, to just look at something and, and admit to yourself that you don't know enough about it to really be able to offer an educated opinion where you're going to put money behind it. I mean, it's okay to just take a pass. I mean, Warren Buffett does it all the time, and he'll read through something and he'll be like, "No, nah, I'm just going to throw that in the too hard pile." And I mean, I, I've I've heard many people talk about crypto and Bitcoin in particular, and I, and I understand what they're telling me. It's difficult for me to still quite connect the dots there in, in understanding why I personally want to be exposed to that. So, I throw it in the too hard pile. I just don't want to mess with it. I don't want to bother with it. And and it strikes me that in, in the case of crypto, I mean, with the ICOs and the mania that came about, I bet you 98% of the people who were actually plowing money into this don't really have a clue as to how this works and why it matters or why it doesn't matter. Now, it's kind of the greater fool theory at work here is um, people see these things going up and up and up and up and say, well, I'm going to buy it and someone else will pay more for it. Kind of the same thing that led to the housing meltdown in like 07, 08. People saw people just getting rich on real estate. So they bought real estate at these inflated astronomical prices saying that, oh, the next guy's going to pay me $100,000 more for the same house. So, same thing's kind of happening here, and it's really not panning out very well. No, it's not working out very well. I never ended up investing any money in, in uh, any type of crypto, did you? Uh, I actually mined about 30 Bitcoins when they were worth about $10, um, and I really wish I had those back. Mined a couple? Now, what how, What did you do to do that? Well, back then, it was really easy. Um, in the early days, you could do it with a basic graphics card or a repurposed graphics chip. Now, you need these giant mining rigs. And I just did it really to figure out how everything worked and you know what what it was all about. And I wound up getting about thirty coins. I think I bought about ten of them and mined about twenty of them. Well, what did you do but with the coins I, that you had? I sold them when it was about two hundred dollars. No, I made something. Out of I it. sold it thinking I made the best move ever, <laughs> and, then, and, and then I watched them go up to about twenty thousand apiece. And <laughs> That's- well, do you do the math? Twenty thousand times thirty. That's better than the story of the guy who, you know, used his Bitcoin back in the day to buy Papa John's pizza or something. I mean, that that was that was you, you made out better than that individual at least. Yeah, there was another guy who threw out a hard drive that had the the, the encryption key for about a hundred million dollars in Bitcoin. Good Lord. 
They, mm-hmm. they, he actually paid somebody a couple hundred thousand dollars to search an entire landfill for it, mm-hmm. and they never found it. It's just keep coming. Well, uh, it's a good reminder for investors out there. Just make sure you know what you're getting into. And, and, and when you hear these celebrities screaming from the mountaintops about it, maybe give it a second look there and make sure they have a clue as to what's going on before you just start buying in based on their word. Well, let's remind our listeners that we would like to thank Grammarly for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Let's face it, folks, communication matters, and writing is a skill that can separate you from the crowd. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps you improve your writing so you can be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Grammarly can help you update your resume to get more callbacks or simply write more confidently for school, work, and even on the go. I mean, everybody's writing on the go. You know, I mean, social media, you're out there posting stuff on Facebook or you're firing out a tweet there. You want to come across as a smart guy, right? Smart girl. you, you got to make sure you're writing well. Grammarly is available across platforms, including online, desktop, and mobile. Their free product reviews critical spelling and grammar, but Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. Go to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off your Grammarly Premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash fool for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. All right, Matt, we were uh, talking before taping about this article that we ran across over the weekend, and it's disconcerting to say the least. Apparently, most young workers are using their retirement accounts like an ATM, and that, that just doesn't sound good in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> it was about 60%, I think 59 to be exact, of um, people in the 18 to 34 age group have tapped into their retirement savings. Clearly, these people aren't retired. So some of this, to be honest, was for a good reason. If you have, say, medical expenses, you have no other way to pay. That could be a valid reason to tap into your retirement money early. Same with um, if you're unemployed and have no other way to cover your day-to-day expenses. That could be a good reason. But about uh, just to get it, run down some of the stats, uh, 16% said they took the withdrawal to make a large purchase for themselves. Uh, 13% said it was just to spend the money. And another 7% said they took money out of their retirement to go on vacation. Mm. First of all, none, none of those are allowable reasons to take your money out. So you're going to get slapped with a penalty for doing that. Uh, the IRS penalty for early withdrawals is 10%. And if you take it out of a, a tax-deferred account like a 401k or a traditional IRA, you have to pay tax on the money on top of that. So you're talking about, depending on your um, your tax bracket, like a 30% plus haircut right off the top when you take the money out. The real bad reason is you're really robbing from your future self here. From the financial planner's perspective, let's say you have $5,000 in, in your 401k and you leave your job. And you, yeah, you might want to take a vacation or something. If you withdraw that $5,000, that could easily become like 3000 or so after taxes and penalties. Wow. Meanwhile, if you leave that invested for 30 years at just the average rate of return of the stock market over the, over history, that $5,000 would become more than $76,000 by the time you're ready to retire in 30 years. So $3,000 now, $76,000 later. Sounds like the biggest no-brainer of all time to me, but a lot of younger people are making the wrong decision there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I do, I do remember 
once upon a time when I was that age. And I mean, you, you, it's a little bit more difficult to, to see that far down the road to actually believe that it really matters. I mean, you, it's very easy just to say, now nah, I'll just cross that bridge when I come to it. But the, the problem is that eventually you do come to that bridge. And if you've been misbehaving all the way up there and spending your savings, well, then you're, you're stuck really with nothing and, and you've wasted your biggest advantage in, in time. And so you can't, you can't make it up, right? You can't gain back what you lost. And that's why we tell people you have to get started immediately, like right when you get that first job, even if it's just, you know, five or six or 7% of what you're getting paid, just start putting that stuff away because time is really what allows you uh, to become rich. If you just, you know, take the discipline to, to do that, and, and yeah, I tell you, withdrawing it for for those types of reasons. I mean, I understand a medical emergency or something like that. And I mean, there are times you you can borrow from your retirement account in some cases to to make a payment on a house, and you can pay yourself back. There are qualified reasons for doing it, but just just to spend the money or a vacation or something like that. I, I mean, I personally would never do that, and I, and I think that 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 could put people in a really a uh, really big crunch when they when they get a little bit older. Yeah, and especially because a lot of them don't realize that it results in a big tax hit when you do that. Yeah. So they'll take this money out and then get to tax time in April, and oh, geez, I owe you know three thousand dollars to the IRS that I wasn't thinking of, <laughs> and you know that that's a problem too. For and then then they do it again. Then they have to take that three thousand dollars out of their retirement account to pay the IRS, and the cycle repeats. So it's it can, it can become a real cycle and can be really tough to get back on track once you. Start withdrawing from your retirement account for for silly reasons. Well, let's hope that the young folks out there hear this and uh, choose to not start pulling out of their retirement accounts like an ATM. Um, yeah, that's just man. I tell you, you, you got to have that. You can't rely on something like Social Security when the time comes because you you can't really count on how much that's going to be able to take care of you i think i mean we we just you got to be able to you got to be able to take advantage of of the time that you have and that's that's what it boils down to so um let's take a look here at twitter for the week a couple of tweets out there now there's one here that goes back to uh our uh, the story we talked about at the beginning of the show the the marriott data breach um and at cash rules pn on twitter uh, Palbeer says, use my credit cards and passport number any way you want, but if my points are drained, there will be hell to pay. <laughs> so, there's a loyalty customer doesn't want his points going anywhere. I get it. I appreciate that. Uh, and then a, a tweet we got from Caleb, at Caleb underscore WVU. Got this tweet earlier in the week. And I, this was a good question. I wanted to get uh, I wanted to get your feedback on it too, Matt, because um, Caleb asks. Uh, he says he says Jason, a question I've been mulling over and would like your take on. When you get to the point that there aren't many stocks that you would like to add at the current moment, whether it's because the stocks I love are already heavy in my portfolio or I'm just not ready to pull the trigger on anything new on my watch list, is it most beneficial to stockpile that cash, average it into an index fund, or a combination of both? Thanks for your input in advance. Matt, what's your take here? My answer is cash, but to a point. Right. I like to keep cash until it builds up over a certain level. And I I suggest that you get like kind of a percentage of your assets in your head that you're willing to hold in cash at any one time. For me, it's 10%, just for an example. So if at any given time, more than 10% of my portfolio's value is cash, I either look into some stocks to try to find ways to put that money to work. 
I almost always choose stocks over index funds, but index funds are fine if you really can't find any other way to put it to work. So I'd say cash is great. It's always good to have cash to take advantage of opportunities because at some point you'll find stocks that look attractive to you. But to a point, you don't want to have half of your portfolio in cash because then, you know, if what happened over the past few years happens again, you'll really miss the boat on a great time for to be an investor. So I, like I said, minus 10%, but set whatever you feel comfortable with. And once it gets past that point, try to find ways to put it to work. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, I, 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 uh, I've gone a little bit more cash heavy recently just due to harvesting some gains from some holdings. And, um, you know, it's, I don't normally like holding that big of amount of cash either. Um, one of the things people always ask, they say, you know, what do I? I need to do something with that cash to earn something on it. I mean, it's I've got this big slug of cash sitting in there and it's earning no return. And I get that, I understand that. But one way I've I've tried to look at that is to say, well, you may not be earning any return on that cash right now, but the return you could look at the return as really being the ability, the liquidity to put that cash to work whenever you are ready. So that if something does come up then you don't have to try to trim from another position or figure out other ways to raise cash. Uh, really, the, the return is that liquidity. It's that availability. And, and I mean, to your point, I think everybody has to determine their own number there. And 10% is a good one. Um, I would say I'm probably a little bit more cash heavy right now. Um, and I'm really trying to put that cash to good to good work. Uh, but but the point stands. I mean, the market out there, it's it's not exactly they're not a bunch of steals out there to be had. So I think you just you just be deliberate, um, you be patient, and remember it is a marathon, not a sprint. But very good question from Caleb. Appreciate it and appreciate your perspective there too, Matt. Um, okay, let's wrap up the week as always with one to watch. Matt, what is your one to watch for the coming week? Well, last week I suggested a financials index fund. Um, this week I'm going to narrow it down. I'm going to say Goldman Sachs, which is one of my favorites. Listeners know that. You know, I've mentioned, <laughs> I've mentioned before. This is ticker symbol GS, by the way. I've mentioned before that Goldman has a lot of room to run with their consumer banking business. They're still one of the, you know, arguably the number one brand name on Wall Street. I mean, when you hear Wall Street, it's pretty much synonymous with Goldman Sachs yeah. for a lot of people. Um, and now that they're in this kind of legal problem with uh, Malaysia, Malaysia is trying to get back, uh, I think, $600 million in fees that it paid in a bond fund that went bad. Um, now that they're wrapped up in this, the stock's kind of taken another leg down and is actually trading for less than its book value Ooh. for the first time in over two years. So I think Goldman looks really, really interesting at this point. Yeah, that is. And what's the ticker for Goldman? GS. GS. Okay. Uh, well, Folks who follow me on Twitter may know that uh, on November 20th, I bought um, Ameris Bancorp um, along with another stock, Etsy. But I'm going to go ahead and shine the light on Ameris Bancorp this week uh, because I did add shares of Ameris to my portfolio. Most folks, uh, you've probably heard it on this show before. Ameris is just a small cap bank down there in southwest Georgia. Um, about a $2 billion market cap, but it really has grown by leaps and bounds over the last several years. Uh, the FDIC found it to be a very good partner in rolling up some of those failed institutions from the financial crisis. 
Um, and Ameris has always been able to maintain healthy capital ratios, which is really encouraging. Uh, the stock is, I, I think, a little. I think it's a little bit on sale this this uh, around this time of year here, around twenty times earnings today. Um, in its most recent quarter, they had uh, announced they grew to, uh, total assets to to close to eleven and a half billion dollars uh, versus approximately seven and a half. Uh, at the end of 2017, so uh, you know, with a bank like this growing that asset base, growing that deposit base, really helps them generate the return on assets that we value a lot of these banks by. Um, and and then you know they have a nice diverse lending book, which really uh, I think is a testament to just smart leadership or good stewards with the capital and and uh, you know look after shareholders. So I think this is an attractive long term idea, uh, one that I uh, you know look forward to holding for for many years to come. And I think uh, listeners would benefit from probably looking into it there. So we got a big mega bank, and we got a little tiny bank. And I think you know those are a couple of good ideas for listeners out there, Matt. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it as always. Of course. Always good to be here. Have a great week, my friend. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. The show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 